What's up, everybody? Chris Dover here, head trader at Pollinate Trading. And today I am joined with my friend Alex Barrow, the CEO, founder, head market strategist at MacroOps. Alex, what is the title? Um, that, that works, I guess. Yeah. The dude, <laughs> the dude at MacroOps. What's going on, Chris? How you doing? HMFIC. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Alex and I have been. I mean, we differ a little bit on time frame and kind of where we wedge our way into our trade beliefs or our, our positions that we're on. But generally, we're pretty, we're both pretty much the same over the course of the last couple of years. Um, I think I've been a little bit more short term on some things, as you would expect. Yeah, well, and that's uh, just a nice way of saying, Chris, that, that you're usually in the trade at least a few days before I am, because <laughs> I'm always late with my entries. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> maybe that's a nice way of saying nice things. Um, but uh, so I kind of wanted to, I, first of all, let's just, let's just take stock of where we are. It's October. Uh, we're about a month away from, less than a month away from the U.S. elections, which will have a Senate and president. Uh, possibly that's what the votes will be on. Uh, the, the majority, the big votes, I should say. Um, we are off of all-time highs in a number of our indexes, in the equity indexes, and fairly close to all-time highs in, in the majority of those, uh, the bigger cap ones. We are at kind of in the middle of COVID still, maybe. Maybe it doesn't exist. I don't know. The president just got released earlier this week after getting uh, COVID and powering through and, and back to work uh, You know, from the little bit of news that trickles into my feed. Um, and that's pretty much it. I'm bullish. Alex is bullish. Uh, and we're both, and I, I'm not going to steal his fire, but uh, here's the two quick takes. Bullish the market, uh, a blue wave coming in, and that's even going to be more bullish for the market. That's kind of the two simplest takeaways of what our discussion will be about. But how he gets there is actually the most important part, the most interesting part. So let's start with, what do you want to do? You want to go politics or do you want to go finance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. why don't we start with, uh, do a quick rundown of the, of the political situation, then we could jump into what that means and then get to markets. Sound good? Okay. Yeah. Cool. So you put an article out earlier this week on uh, sine waves and you know how we get there let's start with that yeah so um in, in that report um I, I i won't get into too much of the the, the theory because it's kind of tough to talk about in a podcast but i just talked about generally um it's the framework that i use for for looking at politics especially in the u.s and i, I think it's something that we can all benefit from um and it's just essentially that we, we need to stop looking at each other as as political enemies you know from from parties um you know uh because collectively i mean if you look at research right collectively we're our intelligence is better than any single individual right with the whole hive mind idea how there's wisdom in crowds and stuff like that when you have you know these equal votes and all the people on the fringes kind of cancel each other out and then you have this kind of uh this wisdom that arises from that and it's better than anybody um, by themselves or any single political group, any single ideology. And this is more like the, this, this tends to hold up the most in 
um, areas of complexity. So markets, for example. Um, and that is that is just as true as things with like governing a country as large as ours, you know, 330 plus million people, um, you know, 14 trillion dollar or large, extremely large economy, tons of people. Um, nobody knows or nobody has a monopoly on the truth or on the best policies on how to get to where we all want to go. And both parties generally agree on where we want to go. Right. We all want good paying jobs, good health care, you know, good protection of civil, civil liberties, protection of the environment, so on and so forth, right? Um, and so kind of my lens for looking at that is just be like, okay, well, you know, we want an oscillation. We want a good back and forth in our politics. We want the changing of the guard, you know, in, in between the Democrats and the Republicans and that kind of constant oscillation be between the two and who holds power, because that gets us to these best outcomes because it kind of takes the form of a sine wave. And if you study like complex... Um, models in the environment and stuff and in nature, this is generally how they move and how they arrive at the op optimal outcome because nobody knows the direct path, but by going off this iterative kind of feedback of switching between the dynamics between the different parties, we kind of can, you know, go on this tight path. And if you compare that to, you know, other examples like single party countries or authoritarian um, countries, governments, they typically you know, almost always go off the rails, right? Because they're not getting that iterative feedback. They're, you know, it's just this single group, uh, single ideology that's guiding a country. And then that drives them way far off the optimal path that like none of us can directly see. Um, and and that, that, that creates its own fragility and stuff like that. So, so anyways, like that's just the general idea, but um, I ended the piece just predicting a, a Biden win. Uh, and, and a likely uh, uh, dim sweep of the Senate. Um, and and I, I think like now at this point, it's not a very controversial take. I think if you look at, um, it's been a week since I look at predicted. Yeah. The last time I looked, it was, I think 70% odds that the market was given to the, the dims taken um, the Senate. Um, and, and the reason why I think this is just, it's just basic demographic math. Um, and uh, it's yeah, I mean, it's basically demographic math combined with a few other things. So, I mean, we could just run through a couple of numbers, right? So, if you go back um, and you look at like, you know, where we were in 2016 to just where we are now, well, 2020 is really the last end of the baby boomers. So, those are the people born between 1946 and 1964. Um, and this year is going to be the first poll in which voting is gonna be dominated by generations younger than 40. So the, the, the millennials and so on. Um, so this is a huge shift because the baby, baby boomers have dominated politics since the early nineties when they became the largest um, living voting generation. Um, but in 2019, last year, they lost that status. And millennials have since overtaken them. I think the Pew Research Center put out the numbers and something like, as since of last year, there are 72 million millennials aged 23 to 38, um, which is roughly half a million more than boomers. Um, and then looking at millennials and Gen Z, um, together they comprise roughly 40% of the electorate in 2020. That's a lot of voting power. Okay, so um, this is just a huge shift. This is going to accelerate, um, and it, you know, and it's not uh, a big surprise, but younger people tend to lean more liberal. Um, and so I think, I think we're going to see a transition where we're going to start to see a shift to more liberal policies, um, not just in the 
just because of we're going to see probably Dems find it easier to hold power for longer. But I think the Republican Party is also going to have to shift left as well, um, just because of you know the, the demographic, not just the age, but culturally, the, the mix, um, the racial mix of, of, of those numbers and, and how those different ethnicities tend to vote. Um, and so from a market perspective, that's going to be significant, right? Because typically um, the, the Democratic Party is a lot more friendly to, you know, expansionary fiscal policies and stuff like that. Um, and with where we are, it's especially with COVID in the background, it's going to be um, much easier to get these things passed. There's a lot, lot more people on board. I mean, even on the, on, the, on the right, on the Republican side. And so I think over the next couple of years, especially if the Dems take the Senate, uh, then we're going to be in a massive uh, uh, fiscal expansionary regime, and that's going to have a dramatic impact on markets, um, you know, on all, you know, precious metals, crypto, um, and, uh, and and really, it's kind of setting the stage. And we could get further into this. I mean, but if you, you know, this is all coming on the backdrop of negative interest rates or negative real interest rates, right? Um, where bonds and cash, there's, there's literally no difference from holding those things. So then you have you know, the whole Tina effect, there is no alternative. Um, and you have this massive injections from the government that are gonna be going into the private sector. Um, and I think we can end up in a real highly speculative regime you know, that could play out. I mean, that, that, that's just potential. I'm bullish um, you know, or looking out over the next few months, but I think that we could end up in a really like wild speculative environment, um, especially if you know if we get if we get a, a fiscal stimulus package within the next couple of months, it's closer around to you know 1.8 trillion or something like that, which I think is is odds on. Um, yeah, then then I think things can get can get pretty wild. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm in violent agreement there. There's I, I've been asking a number of people, uh, my parents included. I I said you know this, this is just a simple one to think about. But uh, when I asked my parents, I said, okay, you've got four options. I'm giving you $100,000 and you can't touch it for 10 years. You can make one move initially and that's it. You can put it in a safety deposit box or a, a you know, savings account. Uh, you can buy the S&P 500, you could buy gold, you can buy crypto uh, or you could buy bonds. And you know, the only thing is, is you only get to make that move once. What do you do? And, you know, the conservative answer is to say, oh, you know, crypto is risky. Metals are risky. Maybe bonds, uh, really conservative is stay in cash. And then, and then you like, you have to walk them through that second thing and say, okay, you have a hundred thousand dollars of buying power today. What do you think you're going to be able to buy 10 years from now? And that's obviously, you know, <laughs> $100,000 worth of home in 2020, which I don't know if that exists anywhere, but $100,000 worth of home in 2020 is probably a $50,000 home in 2030. And, you know, a lot of people don't really realize that, that if you were, if you were a 60, 40, you know, equity bonds or, you know, 40, 60 equity bonds, depending on your age, you're basically only half invested into the market. And so 50% of your money is going to capture the upside and the other, you know, 40 to 60% of the money is going to capture all that downside is still going to look like the same number on your screen or in your account, but you're just not going to be able to purchase anything. And kind of to drive this point home, 
my, uh, my grandfather's 95 years old. He's in a home. He's spending 30, they spend $3,500 a month for him to do it. My dad said, well, we've taken some money out. We're locking it in cash so that we have the ability to, you know, pay for a home, you know, whenever we need it. I was like, okay, fine. Uh, 20, 30 years ago, people living in 95 was a rarity. That's kind of common. So you got to assume that you're going to live at least to 95 or hundred. So that's like 30 years of savings of retirement money about what is that 40? If you work for 40 years, 30 of it is going to end up in your retirement. That's kind of unreasonable to imagine. And, and he said, well, you know, I want to have a couple of years say in cash, if I had to go into a home and I said, well, you know, by the time you're there, that's not going to be 3,500. We're talking about, you know, 9,500, 15,000 a month to pay that by the time you get to that age. There's really no, as you say, there is no alternative. Uh, Tina, it's just, you have to, no matter what age you are, you have to be fully invested just to keep up. And if they're going to pump money out like that, you know where it's going. I mean, we saw what, we saw what happened with uh, stimulus checks. We saw, I mean, we just saw so many different things happen that we didn't expect, uh, or well, I guess we didn't, expect, we expected, but in March at the March bottom, <laughs> we didn't know, I don't, you know, maybe one person in the world thought that would be, you know, above 12,000 on NASDAQ a few months higher than that. Mm-hmm. There's no place to put your money unless it's, it's metals, it's crypto, it's, it's equity indexes. Uh, and that's about it. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's, I mean, that's a good oh, way to real think estate. about it. Yeah. Um, it, it, and that's, that's, that's a thing. Which so is something like, I want to talk to you about to get into real estate. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, but that's an interesting point. Cause I mean, that's the thing, like when cash becomes negative yielding asset, I mean, bonds, there's no difference between cash and bonds. Right. And if let, let's say the fed is able to kind of get towards their inflation target. So the, both those are going to be earning negative 2%. A year, right? Yep. So then, basically, d- the duration on everything just gets extended, and um, you know, it's it's like you you get you get pushed out. You're getting investors get forced out. I mean, this is just forcing out on the risk curve, right? So you just mm-hmm. got to go out, and you got to get, you know, if you want any return and to fight this negative carry, you you got to hold more risky assets um, because there. I don't think there is anything a, a safe asset is just a guarantee to lose money. So you're going to get into, you're going to get into equities and you're going to get into more speculative spaces. Um, the, uh, Jesse Livermore, uh, wrote this like crazy good essay the other, other week for, um, O'Shaughnessy asset management. Um, and I'm still working through it. So it's like 40,000 words long. Uh, but it's, it's amazing. Um, but he, he talks about the whole, it's, he calls it the upside down concept where, um, you know, a lot of this is f- familiar to people where, you know, like in the past, bad news is good news because it means monetary policy is, you know, going to be more um, conducive to asset prices um, and, and uh, risk on environments. Well, I mean, now that monetary, that monetary policy has been kind of run its course, you know, there's not much the Fed can do as far as lowering interest rates. It's fiscal policy comes in and takes that over. Well, fiscal is a lot more stimulative than, than monetary because all monetary policy does when they lower interest rates is just saying, well, you know, we're trying to boost demand, but that means you have to take, take on debt. And so there's a whole you know, process of, well, can I, can I borrow? Then you know, do I have the expectations where I can pay this debt back in the future? Where fiscal is just a direct transfer from the government who you know, they choose to lower their net wealth and then transfer it into the private sector. And that 
then essentially gets transferred into higher higher profits uh, in U.S. corporates and more direct spending um, from consumers, which is you know what we saw in this last one. It's a really good, effective way to boost immediately boost demand. Um, well, it also affects the, the the portfolio mix because if you're if you're injecting you know let's say two trillion dollars. Um, uh, as, as far as fiscal directly into, you know, giving it directly to consumers. Well, the people who don't spend it, they're going to, you know, the, the people who save it are going to invest it. Right. Well, that that's cash. So that goes into their cash and, and bonds holding, you know, which are earning nothing, right. A negative real return. Um, and if they're trying to maintain this certain, you know, asset allocation mix, you know, let's say 60, 40 or whatever, um, well, if they get this excess cash, that means on a relative basis, their equity, uh, their equity percentage then is lower compared to their cash and bond percentage. And so for them to rebalance that, they're gonna have to raise their equity allocation, which is, I, I think, you know, something that we saw, I think um, it was uh, allocation to equities was somewhere around, um, I got to have to look at the numbers, but anyway, say, say, I think it dropped like six percent or something like that um, from from the start of the year to to where we are now. Well, if we get some more fiscal stimulus, um, you're probably going to see people start to try to rebalance that, and that's going to we're talking about you know trillions a trillion dollar plus in flows that are going to come out of cash bonds in their portfolio mix and into equities, and that's a huge demand. And so if we continue to see um, you know, more fiscal stimulus coming down the pipe, which is going to be likely if Dems take the Senate um, and, and Biden wins the presidency. Um, and then you have the backdrop of kind of COVID in the background, which, you know, in one sense, like COVID then it becomes extremely bullish for risk assets because it's a great, uh, it's great cover for Dems to be super aggressive on just juicing the system and getting a lot of stimulative policies done, right? Um, because it's that whole, you know, this whole idea of the upside down kind of markets where, you know, good news or bad news is good news because it means more fiscal injections, running higher deficits, these higher deficits then, you know, feed into greater consumer spending, um, less likelihood of them getting their corporate tax raise done because if the economy is still viewed as weak, um, then, you know, they probably don't raise corporate taxes from 21 to the, to the 28% that they're, you know, Biden's planning on. So they probably keep that loan. They just run a huge deficit and that budget deficit means, you know, according to the uh, uh, levy Kalecki um, accounting equation just means that we end up with more money into our pockets, which then go into savings and investment, go into the market, which probably means a higher equity mix or it goes directly into consumer spending and more, more aggregate demand which is just bullish all around, right? Um, so yeah, looking at that stuff, I think that's what we're kind of seeing. That's why the market, the tape has been holding up so well, despite the narrative being, oh, well, the election's gonna be a mess, you know, with all these mail-in ballots, it might be weeks before we have an outcome. Um, you know, the uh, Congress hasn't been, hasn't been able to get a seamless, you know, plan done. Well, the market's looking past all this stuff, right? So it's seeing this, it's, it's looking at the numbers, the polling numbers, everything looks like, you know, Trump's going to be going out the door and the Dems are probably going to sweep. Um, and so that just means a ton of stimulus. And even if Trump were to win, you know, and, but Dems take the Senate, I, then that's still very bullish because Trump wants a ton of stimulus too. Um, so the, a bearish outcome would be, 
if the Dems don't take the Senate and Trump takes keeps the White House, then maybe. But it, you know, even then, like I'm, you're just looking out where things are. Uh, I, I I don't believe the the Republicans um, when you know when they go on on the you know Fox News and say that they're against the large stimulus bill. I think that's just um, kind of a lot of misdirection on their part. Um, and I still think that there's decent odds that we get a, a sizable fiscal stimulus over one and a half trillion before the election. I mean, we'll see. But I, I, either way, I think the market's looking past all that stuff and it's starting to price in a lot of money coming down the pipe. And then on the backdrop of this, you have, you know, recovering global growth. Um, COVID is is still, you know, it's it's still bad. But if you look at, you know, the daily death numbers and hospitalization rates, they're they're not nearly as bad as you would think if you just watch the news and you just see these rising case counts get um, get reported, right? So there's, it's just this, I think a lot of people are offsides because everybody's caught up in this very negative sentiment funnel from just being so tied into the, <laughs> the political news, you know, megaphone that's going on. It's like just um, kind of screwing up everybody's brains, getting them, uh, you know, and so it's just making everybody a little crazy, but they're not seeing like, you know, what's actually happening. Well, like global growth is rebounding. And a lot of people forget this, but we were in a global recession, like a pretty bad one, all of 2019. So there's been a ton of, of excess that's already been wrung out of the system. Right. And so like, that's another thing I'm looking at. Um, I think it was, uh, I want to say it was uh, Jeffrey's, um, but one, one, one of the large banks put out like a, a note the other week where they're talking about how we might see one of the largest global restocking cycles in, in history, just because when COVID hit, inventory levels were already really low due to the global recession that we were starting to come out of. So like, like going into, um, I mean, early this year, you and I were both bullish, right? And that was, that had been the trade, you know, for a while because people, you know, kept on talking about this recession all of 2019, um, but the market kept going up and up. And then that's because global, we saw that global growth had rebounded. We're coming out of this recession and 2020 probably would have been a much smoother year, but you know, then COVID came, right? Um, well, anyways, like, so inventories were already low going into the, the pandemic. And then once the pandemic hit, well, companies then obviously didn't want to stop, keep producing at the same level. So they, they cut their production just ran down inventories like around the globe. And now we're seeing demand start to build back up pretty quickly. And so now you have to go through your huge production. I and mean, that's a, a, another big production cycle, which is really bullish for global manufacturing, you know, global trade, global shipping, commodities, all that stuff. Um, and so this is something that's gonna be playing out over the next two to three quarters. And that's a huge, you know, a significant tailwind for manufacturing and global trade. Um, so you just, you know, add that to everything else and you see, you know, I mean, I think that's why we're starting to see small caps, um, you know, pick up. It's still too early to, to tell if this is going to be another false start, um, you know, or if they're going to gain some actual, you know, traction and maybe turn, turn the, uh, turn the, uh, the relative performance trade on with uh, small cap value and stuff. Um, but I mean, all that stuff is, is extremely bullish looking out, you know, six, 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whew, a lot of good stuff in there. Um, the, uh, best thing to do is just, just give Alex a microphone and let him go. Um, <laughs> the, 
one thing that's very interesting and uh so so i got long emerging markets right into covid uh, right right in the middle of covid when you know you're looking down the barrel of of everything and it was like it was, they didn't go down as much as everything that was you know that hadn't had the the recession um and it was just one of those like that's that's just a bullish divergent sort of situation um one thing that's interesting I want to talk about after uh, that is paying for all that. And you mentioned going out further in duration. Do you think that a 50 or a hundred year bond is going to be something that's going to come from this massive stimulus? That's a good question. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I've been following that uh, super closely. I know uh, the, Steve Mnuchin has talked about in the past and he didn't seem super interested in it at the time, but maybe that changes. Uh, it would, you know, it would be, it would be interesting and it would, it would certainly fit with kind of probably where we are in that cycle and that we, you know, close sometime in the next couple of years to a secular top uh, in the bond market. Um, you know, but uh yeah, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I actually don't know. I don't, I don't have a lot of conviction on that or stronger opinion on that one way or the other. Yeah, well, my thought, my thought in there being was okay. So how are they going to, you know, what is the stimulus going to be? And if, if something bad does, something similar does happen again, we're talking about universal basic, basic income as being something that's um, now it's accepted. They did it. <laughs> Um, now it's, it's less of a story of that'll never work in the United States to, well, we did that. We, we gave people money, cash just to breathe. Um, and so the thought behind that was like, okay, well now if you've got, you know, how many trillions sitting on the sideline of it, which we probably want to get into on, you know, the big money missing this entire move and still missing it, uh, I spoke to a friend at a very large uh, firm and they're trying to structure products some so that they can get fund managers invested. Literally they are a fund manager and their job is to try to get fund manage their own fund managers invested and other fund managers to invest in their funds so that they can get them into the market because they're sitting on the sidelines waiting. Um, Wait, are you really? Yeah. So, so it's it's they're a fund that's trying to get other funds to invest into them because those funds are sitting in so much cash. Yeah, that's yeah. So uh, well, I mean, they're a fund of funds. They're um, yeah. you know they're uh, they're a big one, and you know, they're yeah. working. I'm not going to drop the name uh, on the on the episode here, but uh, I'll tell you. Um, but yeah, they're they're trying to figure out like how do we get that two trillion dollars to work? We want that money. You know, like we'll, we'll take yeah. carry on that. <laughs> um, we'll put it to work. And so that's an interesting, is an interesting thing. They were uh, some friend daughters, they were here visiting last week. Um, but anyway, that's uh, that is an interesting thing. One topic that is something that you and I have, well, a lot of people have discussed. I know a lot of, a lot of people are, very scared to enter a market when you've been cooking so hot, right? Because they get long in August because they're like, oh, this thing's just going to the moon. And, you know, September 1st comes and you get a 13% dump within a week. And that's, you know, you weren't pulling the trigger, but 
who was who are the people pulling the trigger at the end of August? Because most, you know, the early money is already in. There's not a lot of people that are chasing that. It's the people that need to chase it because they're finally capitulating and saying, oh yeah, well, we need to get in the market and we need to look like we know what we're doing. Um, mm -hmm. And so there is, there is still that two, is it 2 trillion, something like 2 trillion of fund managers that are in cash at the moment? Um, yeah, I don't know the exact number, but they're, I mean, cash levels are still extremely elevated. There, there's, there's, you know, it's this thing, like if you look at cumulative flows over, you know, year to date, it's been all into defensive sectors, positioning, you know, bonds, cash. Um, so there's just still a ton of people offsides. There's still a ton of money offsides that could come in this thing. So I mean, like to, to me, that's obvious. The pain trade is, is higher. You know, I mean, it's, it's, and it could be very volatile, like, because I think like kind of my base case is like, since we're, we're, you know, moving into an environment where, where it's, there's no free hedge anymore, right? You know, bonds have been taken out. You don't have even like the long ends becoming less and less of a hedge to risk. So people are being forced to hold more risk, but that's probably going to mean that we're going to see a lot of choppy volatile action, you know? So, um, which, which I think is going to be interesting. So I think, you know, we could kind of see these wild swings in the markets where it's, you know, we're all playing this greater fool's game of trying to front run everybody else before they get in and then get out before they start selling. Because, um, you know, I don't know how you balance out your risk if you're a large fund, because you're not doing it, you know, buying, buying duration. Um, so you gotta, you gotta be creative. I, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting environment. Yeah. All right. So from there, one thing that's, there's a lot of money on the sidelines and one spot that is probably going to start to absorb a lot of it. And, and just, you know, thinking of the cohort of people who have a lot of cash or have a lot of investment, it's the baby boomers, pretty much everybody, you know, when you're young, you don't have a lot of money after a number of years, you start collecting a lot of money and working and saving and all that sort of stuff, you know, and their, and their favorite, their favorite investment is real estate. So you already, uh, residential real estate, I should say. And so we already have that, like, you know, how many baby boomers do you know have a house and a rental property and a vacation house or, you know, multiple mortgages on their house or they, they've basically, you know, turned their home into and real estate generally into their, their net worth. But a lot of people think that that is more a recipe for a 2007, 2009, scenario. The difference being right now is the amount of inventory and how little inventory there is on the market for the demand. You put out a piece about that. And I don't want to put you to specific on the, on the numbers, but you put out a piece on that recently. Where do you think the, where are you seeing this play out in our, in our discussion? Yeah. I, I, well, I mean, we're, we're, we've been bullish on the housing sector for, for months now. Um, like you said, if, uh, you know, with mortgage rates um, plumbing all-time lows, uh, we're seeing a record low in relative new home inventories, um, like an all-time all low. Uh, so <laughs> the market's extremely tight. Um, we're seeing record sales. That, definitely that fiscal's helped. I think COVID, everybody being locked up, a lot of people being locked up in their, their apartments. Um, you know, made them think that, okay, well, we, we want to get a place with a backyard and a front porch or something. 
Um, Andrew just seeing, you know, uh, millennials, the population of 35 to 44 year olds, I think it's expected to grow 14 to 15% or something like that over the next decade. You know, so you're this strong secular trends for um, home formation. So a lot of tailwinds for that sector. Uh, and I think that's going to continue um, at least into the foreseeable future. But I think it's not going to be um, spread evenly across the board. I, I think there's kind of like a regional arbitrage where you're going to see more blue states, uh, like heavy metropolitan areas, like in um, California and stuff, see a lot of people leave, which we're already seeing. And I think that's going to accelerate just because of, of you know, taxing um, politics and, uh, uh, and, and too high cost of living. So I don't think there's a lot of room for, for that, uh, you know, because those, those places have seen huge um, boom in, in price to income levels over the last 20 years, as far as housing goes, 20, 30 years. And so I don't think there's room for that to move much more. But I think you're seeing a lot of shift to like red states, like here in Texas and Austin, definitely, um, and, and other parts of the country where, you know, I mean, a lot of people can work, work from home now, work virtually, and companies are starting to recognize that. So there's less incentive to, you know, be where you be in a place like LA County where you're, you know, spending over a million dollars on a shitty 1500 square foot home in a bad part of the Valley, you know, so you could drive an hour and a half to work every day um, when you could, you know, move out to Idaho or something like that and work remotely and spend a third of, 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 of that on a home, you know, um, just living costs are, are cheaper and, and, and quality of living is better. So I, I'm really bullish on certain areas, uh, certain regions of the, of the housing market. And so if you can find companies that then, you know, kind of build or focus on those areas, then, then there's some really interesting opportunities there. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of my general thoughts. I don't know what you're, if you have any specific ideas on well, um, real estate. So specific, yeah, real estate is um, pretty much it's it's the boomer trade. It's who's who are the incumbents in policy? Who are the incumbents in uh, leadership of businesses? Who are lawmakers? And yes, while we do have a voting a demogra demography, is that right? Demographics support millennials. It's they're the voters, but they're still not the incumbents in office. So the person who's 60, 70 years old in Congress or, you know, in the government or a CEO of a company and, you know, is thinking about the dilemma of like, okay, um, we should not you know, mortgage our, you know, our grandchildren's future. But at the same time, they've got time to, they've got time to fix it. I don't, I've got, you know, I'm retiring. I got 10, 15 years of my life. I'm not going to fix the problem at, you know, when I need to maintain my, you know, quality of life, my savings, my retirement, all that sort of stuff. I could fix the problem. I could destroy the economy. You know, like the, the, the people who are yelling on Twitter constantly about like the fed and all that sort of stuff, the people that are in place to do that are not there. I mean, they're most, they would be most affected at the worst time in their life. I like a 90 year old unemployment. Think about that. Like 90 year olds, not unemployed, like, like homeless 90 year olds around the country. Think about like what sort of world that would look like. That's not going to happen. Yeah. And so, so just kind of like, okay, well, what is the, what is the boomer portfolio? It's residential real estate, it's stocks, 
um, and it's, you know, holidays and vacations and conspicuous consumption, those sort of things. They're in, and that's not going to change, even though people are getting voted in and out, still the incumbents, the people who really hold the keys, the people who run the companies that do, you know, the, the big work there, the policy and whatnot, they still got another 10 or 20 years, it, you know, 10 probably before Gen X, well, Gen X is probably there right now. Uh, but Gen X is probably the biggest screamers about the bonds and the Fed and, you know, the algos and all that sort of stuff. But they're also realizing, well, you know, there's, I'm not going to peel the bandaid off. So I'm not, I'm going to give up everything to, you know, make my parents go. So they're just going to lose, they're going to lose all that momentum of getting in office and making the change because making the change, the only people that would be that have the stomach to make the change would be, you know, millennials, maybe Gen Zers, of course, because, you have a couple of years into earning a living and you know, you got no savings anyway, you like you're, you're paycheck to paycheck. And so it's much easier to say anarchy when you're, you know, that young, but when you're Heck older, yeah. it's a lot harder. <laughs> and so, yeah. no, that, um, I mean, that's, that's a really good point, man. I think that's, um, that's a good framework for thinking uh, about everything going forward because um, I, I think as the Jerome Levy Institute put out a paper uh, a year or two ago called bubble or nothing. And they just talk about that's the, this is all, everything's the consequence of living in a hyper leveraged financialized economy, right? So when everybody's carrying so much debt, the government, but primarily the corporates and, and U.S. households, you, you can't, to, to reset that is too painful. And so it's politically not an option. Now, very few people actually understand it. The people in power certainly don't, but the market um, lets us know it's it's the signal, right? And so there's when you're carrying that much leverage, there's too much risk if you one like tighten tighten um, monetary policy too much, or if you take off if you raise taxes and you, and you don't have stimulative fiscal policy to offset that. Well, the market's going to let you know by selling off and creating a negative feedback loop, right? Where borrowing costs go up and then aggregate demand drops, consumers get pinched, and then that starts to feed back to the system. And it happens so fast because we're carrying so much leverage in the system, right? Um, and so that's why the, the point of what I, the, uh, the Levy Institute wrote is just that we're in this economy where we're constantly have to inflate bubbles. And I don't, I don't even like the term bubbles because that just gets used by perma bears too, too, fre too frequently just because they're sitting out on, on a trend and not writing it. But, um, but from an asset perspective, that's kind of what where we're at is that we can't afford to go through the reset. So, um, and politically, it's not an option. Like you said, it's not going to be an option for 10, 20 years. And so what we're going to do in the, in the best way, you know, this is just consequences of a long-term debt cycle and all that stuff. And so really the best way to manage that is to, you know, you want to run nominal GDP above, above interest rates. Um, and so you, you need stimulative policies, fiscal policies, some mix of MMT um, to, to fund that, keep demand up, keep, keep inflation you know, at a certain level while we basically um, inflate our debt away and try to you know, get to a less painful reason. There's gonna be winners and losers there because we're gonna end up with some type of redistributive policies down the road with taxing the wealthy and um, you know, more handouts, you know, welfare for, for those in lower income thresholds. Um, and that's, you know, uh, and, and that, that's if you, if that's, if you execute it well, but yeah, I mean, you're right. Like we can't, <laughs> nobody can afford at this point to let 
the the party stop. So you got to keep on like, you know, um, spiking the punch, uh, or else the reset is just too too painful, and it 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 wouldn't last because we would just then elect crazy populists into government to you know then to really go go fucking hog wild on the stimulative policies, right? And so I mean, this is just kind of where we're at, and we're going to be you know, swinging, you know, back and forth. And, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, really aggressive MMT uh, policies be- become the norm in a couple of years, especially because nobody really believes that we can stoke inflation. And there's, you know, secular reasons for that because it's it's tough to. Um, and I think that's, you know, where we're going to be at for the next five to 10 years. And it's going to create a wild trading environment, um, which is going to be excellent for traders. Uh, but it's going to be really tough for investors, for people who are, you know, passive, buy and hold. I don't know how you do that going into the future because everything is going to be, I think we're going to go through these periods of alternating, you know, bubbles, for lack of a better word, in different, that's going to rotate in different assets, you know, and we've already been kind of seeing that over the last couple of years, you know, with the Bitcoin bubble in 2018, you know, and these, you know, wild rides and some of these more speculative names like Tesla and stuff like that. And you just see these start, stop, start, stops. And I think we're, I think that's gonna just spread to the rest of the market because there's no more hedges. Nobody can let the system, you know, we, we can't afford to have a painful reset. So we're just gonna see, you know, we're gonna see the stimulative policies come in, drive the market up. Um, you know, when we get complacent, the market's gonna let us know and it's gonna, you know, go down. We'll see things tighten and then people will react. And we'll, you know, and we're just going to, that's going to be kind of the, the MO over the next five years or 10 years. Yeah. Well, and, and also we can look back to, uh, let's see, what was it? 20, so 2017, the Bitcoin bubble, uh, 2018 had two pretty catastrophic crashes, uh, the, the fall apocalypse, uh, bubble there at the end of 2017, the, the beginning of 2018, like January, February, 2018, when that happened. Um, and then Q4, 2018, we had a 20% sell-off fast forward into 2019. And it's, you know, it's just kind of chill, relatively speaking until the half latter part of 2019 into 2020. And boom, we have a 30 points or 30% sell-off uh, with a minor 13% sell-off, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Like uh, <laughs> those are yeah. numbers that, those are numbers that, uh, over, over a year, you know, yeah, you can kind of string all that together and, and say, yeah, we were in a recession or something like that. But this is, you know, that, that, that was over the course of three years, three and a half years, where you have that many uh, bubble bursts uh, or deflation, reflation sort of scenarios only to get bid up again, like, and, and continually reinvested and, and recarried. It's, it's been, uh, I mean, yeah, I've been in the game 20 something years and I, it's definitely, this is the wildest I've, I can recall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and ex- exactly. And I think that's just kind of what we have to expect, you know, so it's, it's going to be, it's going to be fun. Like, you know, if you're, yeah, if sure. you're a trader and you can just get in and out and ride these short waves, uh, what these wild, these wild waves and that's perfect. But like, <laughs> man, like if you're, if you're a baby boomer, uh, it's yeah. going to, man, it's going to be, it's going to be, I think, rough going. Um, it's going to be rough. Yeah. yeah. Well, and they, and they're, they've Pavlo, the, you know, Pavlovian response to, 
getting, uh, you know, getting dumped uh, or, you know, having the market dump on them and only to go right back up. You know, I, I'm talking to boomers who bought, they bought in April or they bought in March. And yeah. I was like, well, you know, when they called me up, there's like, what do you think? I, you know, I just bought another, you know, 25 grand into my, or, or you know, my, into my, whatever, my investment account. And I'm like, whoa, I didn't know what was happening. I mean, in Mar middle of March, staring down the barrel of a gun, but you know, they've, they've just got that, that response that they just buy the dips now. And they've done that enough times and it continued to work. So you're right. But if we're looking at, you know, let's reference Al Brooks annual chart, he's, you know, he's calling for a, a pretty much up and down decade for the, the twenties really yeah. you know, not, not much of a directional thing, even though we are at, you know, new all time highs almost constantly. So that's, um, which, which I, I think we could see on a real basis, you know, on an inflation adjusted basis. Sure. Yeah. But yeah, the, uh, back quick thought on the real estate thing. I was thinking about that is, uh, so California fifth largest economy in the world, let's say they lose that status with that many people leaving California that, that like reshapes the entire country and the whole political system of the country. If California is not that big of a revenue generator as it was, uh, and a lot of the a lot of the big earners are working remotely as a, you know from some one of the big benefits of being in California is the weather so where where it's pretty much the same all year round so a lot of people are thinking about like moving to Montana to Idaho uh, to these other spots are going to have a little bit more challenge when they get to those spots so one of the thoughts I was thinking about was. I would expect an optimization, like higher prices in the fiber, internet fiber, strong areas. So like Google mm -hmm. fiber or whatever it is, because if you're a remote worker, you know, that becomes far more important so that you can, you know, do your job, do video, do all those different things. So that, that would be one of the, one of the metrics I would be looking for in, in a area for real estate speculation, uh, perhaps, or just buying your own. Um, is you know good internet infrastructure uh not the most difficult weather to deal with so there's northern parts of the country are a little bit more challenging when you know the sun comes up at nine and goes down at three in the middle of the winter um so i think that there's gonna be something to be said on like you know maybe the southern half of the state from people leaving california specifically new york i don't know how much they pretty much just go to florida right <laughs> yeah yeah um, I, I, I think that's, man, I think you're, I think you're spot on. Um, so I think from, I think from like an alternative investment point of view, there's going to be a lot of interesting plays writing on, on those trends, you know, over the next 20 years, you know, yeah. so I, I got a, a buddy of mine, a real estate investor. He said, he's been doing this trade for like the last five years, just going to these, uh, small, um, underpriced, but really nice quality of living cities, like in the South and red States and mm -hmm. just buying up, buying up property, scooping it up, um, in expectation of, of this. And, mm. and I, I think he was just, he's, he was early and it's, it's been paying out. Um, and that's going to be, you know, big secular yeah. trend, you know, for the next 20 years for sure. Yeah. yeah. The, the three bedroom, three bath home is now a five bedroom, three bath uh, 
if if you're talking about a dual income family uh, where you need an office. It's kind yeah. of, uh, you know, so the construction, you know, we just had to build another, uh, build out another room here for my wife's office. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just financially, we were, we were just in a position that it, not financially, but in our workflow, it's just in a position that we, I mean, we have a big house and we still had to add a separate bedroom or a separate office that just, and, and there's no running water in there. It's, it's, you know, just a huge closet really. Uh, you know, 150 square foot closet uh, for an office. And, you know, I, I'd say that's probably a trend too, is figuring out, you know, the remodel market is certainly going to be strong there. Uh, as, as I think Brandon, you and Brandon both uh, have been looking at the home builder, not home builder, but uh, the building suppliers and just that entire sector. I think there's a, yeah. a well, tremendous amount. Thing, the, um, I don't know the, I forget the numbers off the top of my head, but the, the age of the, of the housing stock, it's the, like the oldest it's ever been by, by a lot. Um, you know, so, I mean, that, that wow. just means, yeah, look at, at, uh, you know, any, any businesses that have connection with home repair, home remodel, uh, stuff like that should do continue to do really well, you know, over the next five to 10 years. Um, so, yeah, I have a friend who, uh, <laughs> he's, He's typically been a, a technology technologist and technology investor, uh, and he's moved full on uh, full on service repair, home home repair construction, uh, and he's buying. He's basically buying like heating and air conditioning companies, plumbing companies. He's you know he's raised some private equity, so a small kind of a, a boutique private equity fund. And he's going in and he's buying, let's say, an HVAC company, and that's you know got an owner who's, you know, older and just walks in and says, "Hey, you know, here's five million dollars for your business," and the you know he's already analyzed it, knows that you know they they don't have some of the latest, more efficient. It's you know it's a lot of older, slow, not older, but I mean like older type businesses that have been entrenched for you know 30, 40, 50 years. So like updating to, you know, modern systems is not really where they're at. So he's stepping mm -hmm. in and he's like, you know, he has a five-year plan to get them into these, um, into a, a way more profitable. So instead of being like 20% profitable uh, net profit there, you know, by the time he's done in his five-year, three to five-year build out of the new technologies, you know, slowly at first and then <laughs> all at once. Um, you know, they're looking at hundred percent profitability on, on, you know, up near hundred percent profitability on the stuff because they're just getting so much more efficient. He's going, a technologist going to that sort of thing just blows my mind. That's, and, that's know. smart, man. Like I've been, I've been talking like people who ask me like college students, like, uh, you know, if they're asking about trading, if they're thinking about getting into it, I'm like, oh, that's cool. But like, if I wasn't doing this, I would be doing something like that. You know, a super local business. Um, you know, where you could get in and, uh, and play on these kind of local, but secular trends. Um, so, cause there's just some like really interesting things you can do there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Scaling. That's pretty cool. What else we got? Anything else you're looking at? Uh, natty, natty gas. Yeah. Natty. I mean, I think I'm, I'm going to be writing a report sometime next week on, on natty gas. And I think, that, you know, that. I'm a little bit more constructive um, on that going into winter and next year, just because so much supply is being taken off the market. Uh, 
So we should see things tighten, continue to tighten there. I don't know if you got any thoughts. Yeah, no, I move up to four is pretty much my, um, my trading version. We had a big move last week that I was, so I was, we were looking at it, uh, two weeks ago and you know, wherever we were under two and I was like, okay, well, the mean reversion move is up to four. Uh, we'll just look at, you know, some long-term deep out of the money calls or something like that. And, you know, like really, you know, pay 50 cents to make five bucks sort of thing. You know, just like, it's, it's, it's worth it because it is a mean reversion trade. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. Uh, so you're, you know, it was a very good one. And then we had a 13% move that one or 13, 14% move intraday. And I was like, well, <laughs> well I saw that, man, that. you guys, you, you, you nailed that bottom too. That was nice. Yeah. That was nice it's, trade. but it's, uh, I mean, it's, a uh, it's there. Uh, I, the other thing I'm looking at is as far as natty gas, I don't, I don't look at it in any other way other than the, the you know, the price action. Um, but one thing that's really interesting to me and, everybody want, you know, you know, I always love to get a good dollar, uh, call from you. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> pretty much. Um, if we look at all the majors, everything, and, and we were to go back 40, 50, 60 years on all the majors where they're trading at right now on the currencies, they're all smack dab in the middle of where, you know, the flip from strong dollar to weak dollar. We're literally on the line that where either you bounce hard and you reverse and go in the same direction you were, or you flip hard and you go the opposite. So we're either going to go high on the dollar or we're going to go low. And if you look back to the 19, like I think I can go back to the 1970s on dollar. And it's right there. This literally across the line, you go look at the Euro, not back to the seventies, obviously, but you look at the Euro, you look at Frank, uh, you look at CAD, you look at Aussie, Kiwi, Yen, every one of them, is right at that middle line except one. Can mm -hmm. you guess which one it is? No, which one? Pound. Pound is the median yeah, is about yeah, 155. Yeah. And it's interesting because that's the, I mean, that's where all the, you know, Brexit, that's where that's all kind of up in the air. That's the only one that hasn't really. Yeah, which done I it. actually like for a long trade, and I've been watching that one. Um, cause I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, bearish longer term on the dollar. So I, I, I think, uh, I think Got that's it. super interesting. That's yeah. what I was waiting for. I mean, <laughs> so there, there you have it. That's my call. I was thinking, you know, I mean, cause we were, I was in some little long dollar reversion trades of the last couple of weeks. Um, but I ended up getting out just cause, uh, you know, we, we got some follow through and I took, you know, profits early, thankfully, but, uh, the, the tape didn't hold up, which is, you know, pretty telling because we had, you know, during that time, fiscal stimulus talks kind of fall through, uh, at least temporarily. And you had real yields continue to move up. Um, and so I'm bearish longer term on the dollar just because you have enormous capital concentration in the U.S. relative to the rest of the world. Uh, so at, at, you know, close to all time record levels. Um, and, and then on, on top of that, I think we just have so much more space to to aggressively do fiscal over the next two years, especially if, when Biden and, and the Dems, you know, take, take full, full power. Um, so that just means a lot more dollar su supply and probably rates being, you know, held, held low. So um, that means a lower dollar, you know, in, in, in my opinion, and if you look at the charts, things are looking, you know, pretty good. Like even like, I really like uh, the peso longer term, you know, we saw like over the last couple of weeks, 
we saw the the carry trade get get unwound, you know, get sh- shooken out. But we've mm-hmm. seen, you know, the the peso bounce back real, you know, uh, uh, quite strongly over the last couple of weeks. So I mean, that's a really good sign. If you look at, I, I like, you know, Mex- uh, Mexico equities. The EWW ETF is is breaking out. It's looking good. Um, and you know, I mean, just from a political standpoint, Trump out of office, the Dems, Biden is going to be a lot more friendly to U.S. Mexican relations. Um, you know, so there's a lot of reasons to like that trade and just, you know, specific um, emerging markets in general. But yeah, I mean, we're, if we're moving into a lower dollar, easy fiscal policy, low rates um, environment where kind of high real return expectations for U.S. assets are going to be pretty low, um, then the rest of the world, especially emerging markets, then become a lot more attractive on a relative basis. So, uh, you know, I, I think you still need a lot more confirmation from the tape to see, you know, if we, you know, if when we finally get that switch in relative per- performance regime, because if, you know, just like looking at the ratio charts of SPY versus emerging markets over the last, I don't know, year or so, it's gone, it's gone sideways. Um, but just, I mean, so it's, it's still too early to tell, but that's something I'm watching. And, I, and, and that's, that's, that's something I think with uh, somewhat high conviction is that we get there sometime in the next six months or something that we, we do see the dollar probably break down. Well, and there's, I mean, this is bipartisan. There is a big demand to manufacture in the States. And if you have a, a weaker yep. dollar, it's much easier to sell your products in the world. Um, so, I, I mean, I, it, I think yeah. that it, it just makes the most sense. There's an $18 billion chip factory coming here to Arizona. Um, you know, like you oh, can't, that's is, is, isn't that, um, Taiwan, uh, semi that's building that. I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. so. So, I mean, coming here to, uh, to Arizona, not California. Um, it, you know, there's just, there's some interesting things, but that for sure, if I know that, you know, we really revealed, we, you know, with COVID, we really revealed how, uh, how vulnerable we were to, a lot of things. And the thing about the thing about the government, you and I both know is, uh, as we spent a lot of time in the government, is there's a lot of people in the government that don't come and go every two to four years, like, you know, the vast majority of the government versus the popularity contest for the couple that come and go is, is substantially larger. And, you know, I went through, uh, let's see, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, uh, while I was in the, either in the military or military adjacent. And literally no words changed out of anybody's mouth over that entire period of time. Like as far as policy or anything, it's just kind of, you're just going, the ship is, is steered for the vast majority. When some policy gets thrown in, yeah, you know, shakes, shakes, things up a little bit. They bring on a new department, got to kind of figure out what it is, but you know, the ship is just generally heading in a direction. I guess nine 11 was a big shift, but, um, Oh, that one. But, uh, but it was an event like that. It wasn't a popularity contest that, that changed the ship. It was, and that's just how it's going. So I think, you know, there's a lot to be, a lot to be said on when they're, when you, Everybody basically says we need a week, you know, we need to manufacture our own stuff. How do we do that? Cheap dollars. Let's do it. 
Like, I, I, it, you know, there, there's a dozen different ways to come to that answer, but I think you're right on the dollar. Yeah, no, you're, 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 you're spot on, dude. And that's like one of the few things that both, both um, parties can, you know, agree vehemently on is that we need to reshore a lot of our manufacturing and it's smart. You know, we need like a, a better coherent U.S. industrial policy. Um, and uh, that would be a really good move because <laughs> we're way too dependent on China. And, and, you know, we should expect even with Biden in office that, uh, you know, even though in the past he's, he's got a softer, more dovish record on China, I don't think you can politically afford to hold that going forward. So I don't expect that to be the case. Um, you know, the, the, the Democrats recognize that. So while they might like tone down their public rhetoric a little bit compared to, to, to the Trump administration, I think from a policy standpoint, we're going to continue and only accelerate what, what the Trump administration has already started. Um, and so you're right. Yeah. I mean, that's just like another thing. Like we, we're going to start reshoring a lot of that, a lot of that production. Um, and the, the key point of that is going to be a lower dollar. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point. Yeah. And, you know, as we were talking about with California being uprooted, <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of that manufacturing stuff in the state is going to, there's going to be a lot of demand for, for a lot of, you know, high skilled people. Um, and yeah, you know, it'll be, I, I think we could look back 10, 20 years from now and, and see a, a completely different uh, economy, the way the U.S. economy is structured. Yeah, I'm actually real bullish in a lot of ways on these changes that are, are coming down the pipe. Um, and, and that COVID is kind of accelerating because I think we're going to see like a lot of the higher education institutions get exposed for the, yeah. you know, the hedge funds with an education wing kind of yeah. fraud that they are. Um, right. And and then, especially, yeah, if we're restoring all these high end manufacturing jobs, you know, I mean, uh, trade schools and stuff for, uh, will hopefully boom um, and, you know. And, and, and we're going to start to see kind of a, a, the middle class get reborn, uh, re re-energized, um, which yeah. I think is exciting. And hopefully like higher education gets completely re reworked, reimagined in the process. Now, the flip side of that or the more bearish spin is that, you know, we accelerate our progress on robotics and, and AI and then all that stuff becomes irrelevant anyways, because it's just we're going to be reshoring robotic uh, manufacturing jobs, um, which, you know, maybe is an outcome, but I don't think that's something we... Uh, you know, it's going to be too impactful in the next, I don't know, say 10 years. I don't, I, I mean, I think if it is impactful, so, you know, the robots are here, like we're halfway through the robot revolution. We just don't have the stuff moving around, but we have the, you know, we have the bits doing it. We have all the bits. We don't have the atoms doing it now, I guess, or, well, I don't know if it's an atom still, but you don't actually like the robot itself is not really there, but the, the physical, like, you know, Boston scientific or whatever type robots aren't what we expected, but, you know, swing arm, uh, 3d printing, all those sort of things, uh, are. And so they're really there, but what that does is it, now you have all those PhDs that were working on assembly line and, you know, all that sort of stuff design are now getting, you know, they moved from the assembly line to robotics. So they're, you know, along the U S Mexican border, there's like some of the largest congregation of PhDs in, in the country uh, because they, there was so much in the manufacturing thing there and, and assembly. And once, you know, it starts out at PhD level, but after a little bit of time, you know, the PhD is, is it, they're working on other stuff. So now it needs to go into three other people can do that one person's job. 
and it just kind of goes down chain and then you keep moving up chain. In my opinion, that's more of what's going to happen. It's, it, I don't know about such a displacement of AI and, and robotics and technology in the sense that it won't be replaced with new work instantly. And that requires a lot of education, definitely requires changing of education. I mean, just a rethinking of how you, uh, how you do it. I mean, Silicon Valley did a, did really good about, you know, being just say, Oh, you can code, come to work. Here's $500,000, but I didn't go to school. Cool. I did. Yeah. I don't care. Here's $500,000. I need you to do this for me. Um, and so, you know, that high leverage work of knowledge work, um, high leverage of, you know, the internet software where you do it once like this podcast, we do this podcast once and, you know, hundreds of millions of people obviously are going to listen to it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, you're replicating in your business, especially, you know, you put out one article, it gets read thousands and thousands of times and shared and pushed around. You only had to do it once. And, you know, that sort of stuff is where we're going to end up doing a lot more time, in my opinion. And manufacturing is going to step in there as well, too. So it's, yeah, pretty exciting time. Yeah, I like that take. That's a lot more optimistic take than what typically gets passed around. Um, which I think it's, it tends to pay to err on, on the side of optimism in the long term. Yeah, what's the downside? Yeah, right. You're wrong and you make an adjustment. Exactly. <laughs> the, the upside of, of being super pessimistic is you're right and the world ends. Yeah. And, you know, you get to run a victory lap while the world burns. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right. Anything else you got coming up? Anything you want to talk about? Mm -hmm. Man, uh, let's see. I don't know. Uh, like personally, I'm along a bunch of Bitcoin and Ethereum and um, my man, very bullish on that going into next year. Uh, I don't know. I don't really have any. Let's see. I don't know. You, you got any, you got any thoughts? Uh, you know, pretty much um, long and strong. Uh, you know, the simplest way to say it, we're in bull quiet. And, you know, as you mentioned, <laughs> If, if it's sunny outside or if it's rainy outside, you buy. Um, it's just, you know, being long equity indexes, I think is the, is the move. Uh, I think there's more risk on individual names than there are on an index personally. Um, currencies, if we are in fact doing a complete regime change in currencies, then we would expect higher euro, higher pound, basically everything else. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially as, you know, the, the, Emerging markets come back. Uh, I think a lot of places like uh, Argentina have navigated their way through it, okay, um, somewhat. And oh, dude, dude, you and I, we got to, we should do a, just a full podcast on Argentina sometime. Sure, because yeah. that, that place is there to know, do it. A, a, a perpetual mess. Um, and Every 10 years a, or so. a constant missed opportunity because, you know, due to their natural advantages that they have. Yeah. Uh, but it's also interesting from a long-term investment perspective, you know, you just, uh, I'd like to pick your brain on the politics and stuff and see if you, you know, what you're hearing, if you still, if you know anybody in that area. Um, I do. Um, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. There's two markets there. There's the U S dollar market and then there's the, or, or there's the, like things that foreigners will buy market and that's all priced where it is pretty much everywhere else. So like an Airbnb, you know, in, in downtown Buenos Aires, you're going to pay 
uh, about what you would pay in any other big city. Uh, <laughs> a bottle of wine is going to be two bucks, you know, for a decent bottle of wine. So that's not because of the mass amount of massive amount of wine production that they have there. Um, you know, the higher end restaurants are, yeah, they're just priced exactly the same. It's an interesting, it's an interesting place because of that. Yeah. Um, and, and something of a tailwind for Argentinians is their pride and their love of Argentina is I, I was surprised when I actually got to Argentina that from my perspective, every Argentinian I knew that was just supermodels and the most beautiful people. And, you know, just like a nice, cool breeze and never, never a cloud in the sky and just perfect people everywhere perfectly happy per everything. And you get there and you're like, Oh, it's just any city. It's just like, anywhere. I just thought this is what it was. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I digress. Uh, that's, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 uh, I haven't been there, but I've only heard good things about the place. Um, I love it. They just yeah. managed to politically sh shoot themselves in the foot every couple yeah. of years, uh, which every you know, 10 years or so they do a, they do a splendid job. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but it's interesting cause it hasn't always been that way. You know, back uh, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't long ago where they had a lot of promise, especially as far as Latin America goes. But yeah, yeah, they they haven't been able to miss an opportunity to screw things up. But you know, maybe that changes. I don't know. I mean, they sold that hundred-year bond. That was yeah. It, it's just unbelievable that they were able to sell it, and that I people know. Are like they defaulted. What? My goodness! <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was amazing. That was good. All right. Well, that's it, uh, everybody. Thanks for listening in. Thanks for hanging out. Um, you can catch Alex at MacroOps on Twitter or Alex at Macro-Ops.com. If you want to chat anything that he uh, brought out, anything else you want to share with the world there or the, you know, 100 million listeners at least. Yeah. Just um, uh, shoot me a uh dm on the twitters or something like that but it was great chatting like always and we'll we'll have to do this again soon yeah let's make a little more uh a little more common occurrence of it definitely all right cool. thanks everybody